You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing fantastic. How you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, I was on my way over here today, um, and... Some dude blocks all four lanes of traffic in both directions, navigating an enormous boat out onto the road to the point where everybody has a chance to stop their car, look at it, and go, who is this asshole? What is he doing with this just ridiculously large boat that he's trying to drive around town? Then he finally gets going. I pull up behind him, and I see the name of the boat when it all becomes worth it. Okay. Size matters. Okay. All right. Wow. You know, that's... uh. When you arrived in my home here, with a little behind the scenes for the people listening at home, you uh, you arrived here and you told me a different story about coming into my neighborhood, seeing a 60-year-old man walking down the street wearing an NWO shirt. At least 60, yeah. And then you you break off this gem about the, a guy probably putting, his, uh, probably putting his boat in storage, I would think, because it's getting to be that time of year. You know, it's always a journey coming over here to the north side. I'll say that. If there's one thing that this show is good uh for you, it's, it gets you out of the house. It does do that. Once a week you got to get out of the house and drive across town. Yeah, just dodging stray dogs and uh my feet crunching on broken glass as Ro- I walk up here to your door. Roving gangs of middle school kids. Yeah, swinging motorcycle chains and carrying baseball bats. Naturally that have a nail through them. Well, yeah, man, you don't want to look like a jerk. You want no. to, don't want to show up with a rumble with a regular baseball bat yeah. with no nails pounded through it. They'll never let you hear the end of that. It's probably not even going to hurt you hit somebody with a, with a non-nailed baseball bat. I mean, it'll hurt, but they won't get tetanus. It's starting to get cold outside where we live, and you know what that means. Fire up the slow cooker and invite some friends over for a marathon game of Uncaged. Uncaged is the new fighting slash deck building game from the folks at Z-Mind Game Studio. It sounds like a lot of fun, allowing MMA and gaming nerds everywhere to select from an increasing number of fighters with styles ranging from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to Muay Thai and everything in between. Uh, and then they just metaphorically bludgeon their buddies with jabs, high kicks, takedowns, and submissions. I know what I'm going to do the next time it gets too stormy to go outside. I'm going to invite eight friends over and have an old-school single elimination tournament just like the glory days of the early UFC. Yeah, you don't have eight friends, but the rest sounds great. If you're listening at home and you want to get started on Uncaged, just go to the website uncagedcards.com and you'll get everything you need to get started playing. That includes 50 technique cards and two decks, four fighter cards, the game manual, a score sheet, and a level change token. With a ton of future expansion cards getting ready for release, you'll be able to customize your deck any way you see fit. So even if you have the misfortune of getting invited over to Chad's house to play in his tournament, at least you'll dominate the damn thing. I think you're just mad that I said you had to be the alternate. Okay. You're the Steve Jenum of this podcast. Hey, I'll take that. I will take it. For the rest of you, just go to uncaged-cards.com and take a look at all the cool stuff going on with Uncaged. At the site, you can even watch a video tutorial giving some brief instructions of how to play before you make your purchase. Again, that's uncaged-cards.com. Go there today and start getting your cardio together for my tournament. It's going to be huge. No, it isn't. 
That's what you think. We got music again this week. Uh, new music, I should say, from longtime listener Eric Randall, who, if you know anything about music, you may recognize as the guitar player for the Seattle band Taco Cat. Huh. New music. I'm excited. Yeah, it's a, it's a palindrome. Taco Cat. So it is. How about that? Uh, Eric's other band, The Trashies, just put out a new album called, get this, Ben, The Octagon. Huh. Uh, they've been working on it for a few years now, so we're going to feature a track off that new record this week. If you like what you hear, you can find more at thetrashies.bandcamp.com. And hell, if you're in the neighborhood, go check out The Trashies during the album release show on October 13th at Black Lodge in Seattle or the next night on October 14th at The No in Portland, Oregon. We're huge in those cities, in those yeah. markets. Yeah, that's our people right there. Those two shows are going to kill. In, there and Liverpool. That's where we're big. Yeah. <laughs> Funny we don't ever get any emails from guys on the Sounders or the or the Portland Timbers. I assume they're just like, you know, the kind of listeners. They want to stay in the background, though. We got three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Demetrius Johnson threw another human man up in the air this weekend at UFC 216 and then armbarred him on the way back down. So that negative thing you were about to say about him is now null and void. And in round number two... Tony Ferguson loves to hug and dance and sing and dance and sing and hug and dance and sing and hug and dance and sing and hug. That's a Trolls reference for those of you who don't have kids. And now he's the UFC uh, interim lightweight champion. And in round number three, what's that on his chest? Is that staff? So that's not what you want to hear right before a UFC title fight. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Ross in Ohio. And he writes, So the Go Horse goes out this past Saturday and gets a quick finish over someone we can all agree was, in fact, a UFC heavyweight. Between Kane's injuries and fan hate around an inability to determine when it's okay to use gay slurs and a willful, willful ignorance of aligning oneself with an actual freaking dictator, does Verdum have a decent chance at the next title fight? Discourse, please. Uh, so, Ben... You had Fabricio Verdum go out there this past weekend and get a first-round armbar submission, as he is wont to do, against late replacement Walt Harris uh, in a heavyweight main card fight at UFC 216. Now, obviously, coming up in round three, I think we'll talk a little bit about what happened to uh, Derek Lewis and his late pullout, because I hope you didn't think you were going to get through this UFC pay-per-view without some shenanigans yeah. right there toward the end. Some last-minute shenanigans. I guess you got to give it up uh, for Walt Harris, who was originally scheduled to go out there and face Mark Godbeer uh, in a preliminary bout, but he decided to, you know, as I think Daniel Cormier correctly pointed out on the show, uh, take advantage of this opportunity that he might never otherwise get by fighting a guy the level of Fabricio Verdum, uh, yeah, do you have to give it up for him, I wonder? I mean, because I don't feel like it was a reasonable thing for him to do. Like, hey, take your shot against Fabricio Verdum. Why not? It's your chance to go from being somebody most fans don't know or care about to, you know, maybe being a player if you get you go out there and something crazy happens and you beat Fabricio Verdum. But then he just went out there and just got trucked really quickly, taken what? down really easily, uh, and then just mauled on the mat, and it was... Really a reminder that they, there's levels to this shit. No, it truly was. But I do, th I think you got to give Walt Harris some credit for like, for taking the fight on, on like basically less than a day's notice. Uh, he's 34 years old. So I guess you got to strike now if you're ever going to do it. 
in the UFC heavyweight. Oh, I mean, actually, he's probably got about a decade left yes. before he's out of uh, you know contention in the heavyweight division. But I mean, he came into this fight; he's on a two-fight win streak. So you know, you win three in a row at heavyweight. Uh, yeah, what's he going to do? Say no to the UFC? There, no, I'm not doing it. You're on the verge of cracking the top ten. Well, I mean, then I don't they know. ask Mark Godbeer, and you lose your fight anyway. I guess that's true. I guess maybe you're painted into a corner here if you're, uh, if you're Walt Harris. Mark Godbeer, I think, got the better end of the deal here. Because he still got paid. He, he got paid, and he put out like a, a Facebook message that suggested at least that he expected to fight in New York like you know less than a month. So, hey, that's a pretty good deal if you can get paid twice for one fight like in one month's time. I, you asked me, especially knowing how it went down in the end, and we all should have known about how it was going to go down. I'd rather be Mark Godbeer in this situation than Walt Harris. Alistair Overeem had just beat Fabricio Verduma at UFC 213, so uh, Vi Cavallo was coming off a loss, gets off the schneid here, beats Walt Harris. Uh, what do you think about Ross from Ohio, Ben, uh, postulating that it, it could be that Fabricio Verduma is now knocking on the door uh, of a shot at Stipe Miocic, your, your UFC heavyweight champ, even though he just lost to him back in May of 2016? Because it ain't like there's a lot of dudes right now uh, knocking on the door, waiting for to to fight Stipe. Yeah, well, there's the question of should he get a title shot off of that, and will he get a title shot off of that? Like, should he? No, I don't think. You know, you you lose a fight and then you win one against you know a guy who uh, is unranked guy who came up from the prelims to take this fight. Like that doesn't really prove anything. If you'd beaten Derek Lewis, maybe, but he didn't really get the chance to do that. So. I don't see how that should propel you back into a rematch this close. There's other heavyweight fights that you could make conceivably. And it seems like the thing that's stopping us from making a heavyweight fight anytime soon isn't the lack of dudes. It's the that Stipe wants a better deal and more money uh, in order to be UFC heavyweight champ. So, I don't know. But will he? We know how the UFC heavyweight division goes. I mean, if you can just stay reasonably healthy, stay near a phone circumstances can always conspire to put you in a title fight. Wait, are you saying if you're a UFC heavyweight, stay in cell service yes. range at all yeah. times? Don't go hiking. I know it's tempting. Don't do it. Well, isn't, a discuss isn't any discussion of what should happen just like ridiculous when we're talking about the UFC heavyweight division? You, well, okay, sure. I don't even know. I mean, you got Francis Ngannou is about to fight Alcer over him, right? When, when are they having that fight? When's that, when's that going down? I don't know if it's Some, sometime head, but, in the near future, but yeah. that, that's your number one ranked contender against your number four ranked contender. Uh, Cain Velasquez is in a perpetual state of suspended animation. So, uh, you know, this, this Derek Lewis fight was supposed to be number two against number six. Fabricio Verdum is your second ranked heavyweight contender, according to the official UFC rankings. So, uh, I guess it depends on when Stipe Miocic wants to get out there and have a fight, right? Because you could put the winner of Ngannou versus Overeem forward as the next heavyweight contender. Uh, but depending on when that fight is, did you look that up yet? No, I'm, I'm just not. sitting over there doing nothing. You can look it up. You're, you're sitting right there. I see you. Your hand is literally resting on your hip. You're not even doing anything. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do it now. Okay, well, so, so uh, we have no idea when... <laughs> There's no Alistair way to know. <laughs> There's no, just there, no it's, way it's we can unknowable. possibly figure out when that fight is. So depending on when that fight is and how long, you know, Miocic wants to wait before he fights again, Fabrizio Verdun may well be kind of your only option. Do you think that it hurts him that, it, like, sentiment seems to have turned against him a little bit? Not only, you know, the, the, there's the little beef he had with Tony Ferguson, then there's the being paid by the actual freaking dictator. 
it seems like the the lovable Fabrizio Verdum days are kind of gone. People yeah, are a little gone. less excited about that's it. That's done. I mean, I mean, maybe he feels bad about it. Maybe he's disappointed. But if you're Fabrizio Verdum, you kind of made your bed here, man, right? UFC but, 218, December 2nd. Great. Well, now, 30 seconds after the fact. We needed it. You happy now? We needed it 30 seconds ago. And plus, let's be honest, there's a, a better than 50% chance that something happens and that fight does not take place. We'll fix this in post. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Shell. He writes, two draws in one show. Ben describes it as, quote, like seeing a shooting star and driving into a unicorn, end quote. Uh, mine was a little more eloquent than that, but okay. Or where would you, that's what you called it? Where'd you call it that? Call it that. The trading shots with Danny Downs. Oh, right. Yeah. Anything goes in trading shots. Surprised uh, you didn't read that. I know you're a big reader of that one. Surprised you missed it. You know what? Now that starred. it's... Starred. Got it starred to read later. Now that it's clear over on the MMA Junkie that they're just like not even trying to edit you anymore. Just like whatever idea dribbles out of Ben Folks's fingertips onto the keyboard goes whatever, up there. Whatever magic, you know, comes yeah, out of these fingertips. Whatever That's just what you're melted butter drools out of the end of your fingertips. <laughs> I always read it now. Uh, anyway, Chris Shell writes, he argues for the institution of a sudden victory. You argued for the inclusion of a sudden victory round? Sure. I guess you got to fill those those spots somehow, right? Got to do trading shots every week. <laughs> you okay? You're gonna get through the end of this question before we argue about a sudden victory round. All right. Personally, you act like it's an insane idea. Chris Shell writes. Personally, I'm okay with the draw results, especially in these fights where this seems to like the most correct result. But I'd be interested in how fighters feel. They train for three rounds. Would they rather fight another round in a tough fight or stick to the draw? I think a lot would depend on if they get paid or not. I think. If you put in a clause like in the contract, like, hey, a sudden victory, that you get an instant financial boost for being in a sudden victory round. And if you don't get your win money for a draw, uh, then I think fighters would see that there's a financial upside to going that extra round. Plus, it's not like this has never been tried anywhere before. They do it in the Ultimate Fighter. The IFL had a sudden victory round uh, clause that I don't think they ever got to use. Uh, they had one, the UFC had one when it had that little mini flyweight tournament to determine the first flyweight champ. Remember that, uh, where, uh, Ian McCall and Demetrius Johnson, uh, and they, the officials screwed up on that one and just didn't tally it right. Didn't realize that it should have been a draw that sent them to the, uh, sudden victory round. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been tried before and it seems like a good enough system if we really want to make sure that there's a winner. Yeah, Maybe. Is there a fighter safety angle about it that bothers you at all? You got two guys out there uh, trained to go 15 minutes. Suddenly you're adding an extra uh, five minutes on the end of that round. Now you're going, now you're going four rounds. Right. Instead of, instead of three. I mean, what if, what if nothing happens there? What if that round is a draw? Then do we go five rounds? Just keep going. Is it going to be like baseball? It's not going to be like baseball. Extra. We're doing extra innings now. No, I mean, it's a fair question because, one of the things that we talked about in the straighting shots that bugs me about when people get mad at a draw, like it's one thing when there was a point deducted, like the Lando Venata, uh, 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 Bobby Green fight, where then it kind of messes up the scorecards. Uh, otherwise, if somebody scores like a 10-10 round or something, and that's how you get to a draw, people will get mad at a judge for scoring a 10-10 round. But to me, it seems like if it's really an even round, and that can totally happen, then you should score it even, uh, instead of just asking the judges to constantly, like, just pick one. It was super even. But just just so we can't have a, a tie, go ahead and say one guy won. Uh, I don't see the point in doing that. But, you know, you would end up in a situation where you're like, okay, here's the sudden victory round. Got to pick a winner in the sudden victory round. Um, 
I don't know. I it doesn't seem like a, a terrible idea to me that at least have that option. It's not like draws are super common. I mean, like we said, this this one having two draws in one show really uncommon. But I was actually struck by how in both cases neither guy really seemed very upset at the draw. No, they, they both all just kind of like, hey, how about that? They seemed cool with it, really. Uh, yeah, I, I just think you get into a, an Iowa baseball confederacy type situation. The WP can sell a novel where the Cubs come to Iowa to play a minor league team, and then the game goes on for like weeks and months. Huh. Well, now I don't have to read that because you just described it to us. Spoiler alert. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, it's not often that a fighter can have an 0-2 record in the UFC and still be a hashtag must-watch fighter, but for me, groovy Lando Venata is that guy. I was thinking Lando Venata's illegal knee foul to a grounded Bobby Green at UFC 216 would give him an 0-3 record in his walking papers. What do you think of his ability to compete in the UFC? Is it a poor choice in opponents, a lack of finishing power slash ability? Who should he fight next, and what is his ceiling in the UFC and lastly, this is a lot of questions. Uh, can someone with an O two and one record still be one of your guys? Please go on. Well, Devin Scott, anybody you want can be one of your guys. Plus, he has a one two and one record. He has a win in the UFC. He knocked out uh, John McDessie with that uh, flashy kick back in uh, December two thousand sixteen. UFC two hundred six. Don't let society come in here trying to tell you who your guys are, man. <laughs> I I agree. These are your guys. And let your freak flag flag fly. And there's a lot of reasons why Lando Venato would be one of your guys here, wins or, or not, you know. I, and I think, though, that is a good point because when I see Lando Venata on a fight card, I'm like, all right, yes, going to be in my seat for that one. Especially Lando Venata and Bobby Green, you could tell that one's going to be some fun. And it was. It was obviously uh, the best fight on the card. And, yeah, I'm... I'm not going to get too hung up on it uh, on the record. I can see why he would probably be bummed at a certain point and that it's going to affect his uh, negotiating position with the UFC. Uh, but as far as like why, I, I think that there is definitely a connection between how he fights, why that's exciting, and the record. I mean, he you know he came in, got a tough draw to come in where he had to show up on short notice against Tony Ferguson. We all know how good Tony Ferguson is now. And he had him hurt early on and then got finished in the second round. Uh, they beat John McDessie, had that uh, decision loss to David Timor. And then this one wins Bobby Green, where he was seconds away from winning this one. Uh, seemed like it could have been stopped. And then he lands that illegal knee, which buys Bobby Green time to recover and also costs him the fight on the scorecards with the points, but still a hell of a fun fight. I look at that record and I see a lot of things that one or two breaks and you're a star in the UFC as opposed to having a losing record in the UFC. Yeah, and if anything, he's like a testament to how far you can get by just having a fighting style like that, right? Where you go out there, let it all hang out. You try to do a bunch of ridiculous stuff. Maybe you make some mistakes that, that put you in trouble, but uh, you're still the kind of guy that, that people want to watch fight, even if they're you know tucking your fight with Bobby Green down on the as the, the co-main event, the co-featured prelim uh, of the... Uh, preliminary section down there on FX. Uh, and, you know, part of this is maybe that Lando Venata gets into the UFC, as you said, against that uh, in that fight against Tony Ferguson, uh, which is a tough draw for anybody. Now you got him there. He's 25 years old. He's obviously still uh, kind of a work in progress, but uh, you almost feel compelled to keep a talent like that if you're the UFC, even if there's going to be some growing pains along the way just because you don't want to see him fighting over on spike tv no so like now that that lando venata's in the ufc uh maybe just take the maybe take the long eyes approach here the long term 
uh, approach and kind of wait for him to develop to develop uh, rather than, you know, going back to, to how things might have been five, five, six years ago and cutting a guy after, you know, a couple losses. Yeah, but you don't you cut a guy like that and you do not make your future fight cards any more exciting. And as for Devin Scott's question, absolutely. Go ahead and let him be your guy. Don't don't get so hung up on the win percentage, man. Okay, here That's we go. That's not what having a guy is about. Here, here we go. Okay. This question comes from Frank Sandro. He writes, quick quiz. What's the best way to honor Las Vegas first responders? A, insult country stars on Twitter for not coming to sing at a pay-per-view event so under the radar that one's own media partner bounced his prelims off the sports channels in favor of more popular events? Or B, give the money you'd spend on said singers to appropriate aid organizations and assure that uh, the surely unionized first responders that you'll prioritize athletes' labor rights. Bonus question. Does this flame out feel strangely familiar? Okay. So we know what we're talking about here, Here right? we go. Well, first of all, to correct Frank Sandra on some facts here, it was not a uh, insulting them on Twitter. It was insulting them to TMZ Sports, which was one of the things that makes this feel particularly like an unforced error for Dana White on my part. Because, uh, you know, being in the media, I have a hard time imagining that TMZ Sports called up to be like, yo, Dana, what's up? Why wasn't Jason Aldean the one to say, why was it ever last? Like, give us the scoop. Seemed like maybe Dana White had a bone to pick with Jason Aldean, and he called up his buddies at TMZ Sports and was like, here's something I'm mad about. Run a story on it. Uh, so just went out of his way to go ahead and make like a divisive remark at this time when you're out- outwardly promoting unity. Um, also, the as far as giving money to appropriate aid organizations, the UFC did do that. Or at least that's what I've, I've read that they plan to do. I don't know if they've actually done it yet, but that they had pledged a million dollars in the wake of this shooting, which... A generous donation, of course, and way more than like the uh, the new hockey team in Las Vegas. Like they pledge like three hundred thousand, and the UFC goes way beyond that. Um, and I thought, in general, everything the UFC did on the broadcast with you know video packages and having the the first responders and the victims at the the fight, like giving them free tickets to the fight, uh, having all the fighters come out in the uh, the the t-shirts and have a moment to like express their solidarity, especially since so many of the fighters train in Vegas and it's like a second home for a lot of them. I thought everything they did during the broadcast was absolutely perfect. The tone was right. You know, having Everlast come out and sing America the Beautiful, which he chose instead of the national anthem for all good reasons, as he explained later on. All just like pitch perfect ways to respond to this thing. And that's what made it even more incredible to have Dana White go out there and be like, actually, I am not done here. I would like to say something to mar our, you know, this pleasant evening that we have had. Uh, marking this terrible tragedy. Uh, I want to make sure I take a shot at somebody over it for no good goddamn reason. Yeah, and if this is the end cap of how the UFC (laughs) handles this obviously terrible tragedy in Las Vegas, uh, it is like one of the most UFC things that I can think of for all of the reasons that you just lined out. In fact, as the UFC 216 pay-per-view card is playing out, you know, you start things off with that recorded message from Dana White, which I thought was perfect and he's out there looking like he has almost tears in his eyes and appearing very heartfelt uh you know and which is not necessarily the image that we see of dana white a lot i thought you know it clearly hit home like that this tragedy occurred right where the ufc lives that everybody on the roster was kind of feeling it that dana white even was was feeling emotional about it and like throughout the entire pay-per-view as they did you know, recognizing the first responders and the video packages that they did and stuff like that. 
I was like, man, this is, they're doing this perfectly. This seems like such an uncharacteristically uh, amazing job of doing this for the UFC. And then I feel like the, the thing that we are all going to remember about this situation is that Dana White ripped Jason Aldean to TMZ.com, which is like a classically MMA slash UFC thing to have happen on the back end of this otherwise like legitimately touching and well done memorial thing. Well, and the thing that is kind of frustrating to me is you see, I'm surprised that like there's a, a pretty even divide among fans that I've seen uh, where people being like, no, Dana's right. Like Jason Aldean's a son of a bitch for going and doing Saturday Night Live that night and not doing, uh, you know, a thing at the UFC in Las Vegas for the people who are actually there. Which, first of all, I'm, put yourself, you know, four days earlier or so, like after this shooting, well before the UFC event, and imagine yourself saying, well, one thing's clear after this mass shooting. Jason Aldean is a real bastard if he doesn't sing the national anthem at UFC 216 in Las Vegas. You never would expect that right. of somebody, especially like when you're going out there to have this message of like support for the victims. And he is among the victims. I mean, he was out there on stage singing when the shooting started. So he might be a little affected by this thing as well. And to be like, we support the victims except for this one because he didn't do what we asked him to do and we're mad. And one of the things people seem to seize on is that Dana White's comments where he said, well, we asked his representatives to do it. They said, you know, he's really shaken up. He might not ever even perform live again. And then he goes and does Saturday Night Live. Um, and that's when he goes, fuck you, Jason Aldean, stay out of Las Vegas, as if he is the king of Las Vegas, and he has just taken away your Las Vegas privileges. Um, first of all, would that I could abuse the truth as often in my life as Dana White has and still have people just take my word as gospel when I say something like that? Like, hey, here's what his representatives told me, and everybody says, yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, second of all, as somebody pointed out on Twitter, good luck being the person who's going to, to decide the truth in what was said between a uh, country star's management and a fight promoter. Uh, you don't know exactly what was said there. And, you know, even if they did, even if you're going to tell me that the country music star's uh, management uh, lied to a fight promoter to, you know, soften the blow of something he didn't want to do because he wanted to do something different. Let's just say I don't know if that's going to be breaking news to Variety or something. I don't think it's the first thing that's first time that might have ever happened in the entertainment industry. And also, like, who are you to think that you can tell somebody, like, right after they were involved in this mass shooting, less than a week after, you were obligated to do this? Like, you don't ha this is not like the official event of first responders and victims from the shooting. It was a nice thing you decided to do to have some of them there, but it's not like anybody is obligated to show up at your show. Like, what if you know, the hockey team had had uh, a thing, and then would he be obligated to go sing the national anthem at the hockey team thing just because it's in Las Vegas too? I, I don't get where people get this sense of entitlement about it that, like, he absolutely is obligated to go do this, to return to this city less than a week after this ma this terrible mass shooting that he was involved in. Yeah, and if Dana White's, like, version of the negotiations is is correct, which obviously, as you said, is a big if, like, you could see how you as as Dana White would come away from that situation uh, feeling a little bit like, huh, a little bit hurt, right? If the last thing you sure. hear from Jason Aldean's people is that he's not going to play live ever again, and then he's on Saturday Night Live the, the same night with the with the cold open. Uh, you Which, might, though, by the way, is a little different to play like in the 
the soundstage at uh, you know in New York for, for Saturday Night Live rather than to return to the scene in yeah. Las Vegas in this giant arena, you know, right down the street from where the thing happened. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Like, yeah, but I I could see how Dana White might feel a little bit miffed about that, like a little bit scorned. But at the same time, like. You don't have to say that out loud. Keep it to yourself. In public. Just for what seems like no reason. Well, also, like, all the arguing that's gone on after that has just completely undermined your message of support and unity. Because you've done the exact opposite now. Like, you have, like, driven this rift. And for what? Like, what did you gain out of it? That some people are like, yeah, Dana White's right. And the other people are like, what a colossal asshole to do this in the wake of, like, a terrible tragedy to try to turn it, like, about him somehow. It just makes you look like a like a petulant child throwing a tantrum over this. All right, let's squeeze this one in at the end from Mark S. I wouldn't be surprised if this email got lost in all of the UFC 216 stuff that went on this weekend, but how about that announcement of Carlos Condit versus Neil Magny? I think this is a great return fight for Condit. Magny is sure as hell no pushover, but not quite elite enough to destroy uh, a Condit that was ring rusty. I like this matchup for Carlos and favor him for the win. What are your thoughts? Enlighten us all, please. Um, I think when this got announced, Condit versus Magny, aside from the sort of, uh, you know, out, outpouring of joy that the natural born killer is going to come back to the octagon and, and fight again, it seemed like kind of a strange matchup, a little bit of a low profile matchup for Carlos Condit, the former interim welterweight champion. But I agree with the kind of like stylistic points here that, that Condit versus Magny has the potential to be a real crowd pleaser and is, you know, uh, the right kind of fight you would give a guy if you feel like he might have some ring rust. It's been a while since he was in the cage. Give him the chance to, you know, hit the ground running here. So, like, uh, I think it's a decent choice in retrospect, uh, and, and I think that uh, it will be a fight that, that might well turn out to be fun to watch. Yeah, and came kind of quickly after Carlos Condit jumped on Twitter to tell Sean Shelby that he's ready to get back in there, right? Well, you don't. When if if Carlos Condit hits you up on Twitter saying he's ready to go, what do you what do you do? Wait? Yeah, yeah you make a note to yourself. I'll get back to him later. Yeah, tuck that in your in your coat pocket. Wait till next season when you find it. But you know, then that's what spawned all the fantasy matchmaking that we did about. Hey, you know, Carlos Condit, Mike Perry, maybe. Um, but. Yeah, you know, this to me sounds like a really good test to see where Carlos Condit is. Do you feel at all weird about seeing Carlos Condit jubilantly come back after saying all the stuff about how he might be done? He was concerned about brain health stuff. Um, I don't feel surprised by it. Maybe, a, you know, maybe a little bit uh, unsettled. But at the same time, I feel like this is a... a a trope that we see in, in fight sports a lot now, not necessarily as it concerns brain health, but just like a fighter who has a very busy schedule has been in the game for a long time, starts to feel a little bit broken down physically, a little bit tired. Maybe they have some performances that they don't feel like were, were their best and they want to, uh, you know, they feel like walking away and then you go spend some time off. Maybe you get healthy. You start feeling better. You start seeing your performances in the gym, pick up a little bit. Uh, and you decide you do want to get back out there for, you know, a handful of, of additional fights. So like, uh, I think somebody, you know, it would be interesting to hear, I guess, from Carlos Condit about whether or not his fears have been set aside or whether or not he just can't ignore the itch to come back and do it again. Uh, but it's not surprising. This is the kind of thing that if you were going to put odds on it, I think you might expect to happen with a guy who, you know, at least outwardly appears to enjoy the job as much as Carlos Condit does. Yeah, true. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, 
email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday night, every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of this week's co-main event podcast is once again sponsored by Fulton and Rourke. You know, Ben, we've been talking about the uncaged card game for a few weeks now, and we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention that Fulton and Rourke has cards too, even though they're not selling games. If you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you already have heard us talk about Fulton and Rourke's line of solid cologne. Now, with their new fragrance card sample packs, you can try out each of the five cologne fragrances before you buy. Ben, tell the kids at home how that works. Yeah, Chad, the sample sets are just $12, plus they come with a $12 coupon code, so if you find something you like, it's like the samples were free all along. The card shipped directly to your door for free, and then you can use the samples to try out each of Fulton & Rourke's five solid cologne fragrances, including Shackelford, Tybee, Hatteras, Clearwater, and, of course, Captiva. Captiva. Get a whiff of each one, find out which works the best for you, and then use that gift card to get started on smelling great in a full-time kind of way. Gotta love that Captiva. It's a fresh, green citrus fragrance that started off as a limited reserve, but customers liked it so well that Fulton and Rourke made it a permanent offering. Maybe you've been thinking to yourself, I should step my game up in the grooming department, but man, I'm not buying some cologne without having smelled it first. Problem solved. You can get those sample packs that Ben just told you about by going to FultonandRourke.com and trying some today. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com. Well, Ben, as we begin this discussion about Demetrius Johnson's win over Ray Borg in the co-main event of UFC 216, which, of course, was the flyweight title defi- defense that finally allowed Demetrius Johnson to pass Anderson Silva uh, for the most consecutive UFC title defenses of all time, because you know the thing that everybody wants to talk about is that submission, and I think that's where we got to start. Demetrius Johnson, uh, about three minutes into the last round of this thing, throws Ray Borg up in the air in his own description, quote, like a sack of potatoes, (laughs) and then wraps his legs around him as he returns to Earth and armbars him for the finish. Never seen anything like it. Today I see, via the Twitter machine, that Demetrius Johnson's on the MMA Fortnite, and he says he calls this, I hope I get this right, I don't have it in front of me, the Mighty Whizbar. Huh. I prefer John Morgan's name for it, the Mousetrap. Well, he, the Demetrius Johnson says on this show that there's a different submission that we have not seen yet, and it is called the mousetrap. How, how's he going to tease us with something like that? I don't know, but Demetrius Johnson is out here, like, pulling off weird catch wrestling moves that we haven't seen during the modern era, and he's teasing us about other stuff. That's pretty awesome. Do you feel like this win maybe has turned a corner for Demetrius Johnson? Not only, I mean, he breaks the record and everything, but, like... You know, it looks like it's going to be a regular Demetrius Johnson fight where he's winning absolutely every second of the fight, just dominating Ray Borg, uh, so much so that you kind of take him for granted the way that we have been for a long time. But then he pulls off that submission, and you're like, okay, even the people who are not huge Demetrius Johnson fans have to look at that one and be like, 
this dude is something special. Like, he is just inventing new stuff. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it feels like there's nothing that Demetrius Johnson can do in the flyweight division to win those people over. Because if you were going to give Demetrius Johnson a fair shake and be like, hey, I'm going to be a Mighty Mouse fan and buy Mighty Mouse pay-per-views, I feel like you already would have made that switch. Uh, and while I think people are going to see this submission uh, and think that it's amazing and that Demetrius Johnson clearly has this sort of like next generation otherworldly talent, I think that the people who have thus far kind of given him the cold shoulder will still be like, eh, whatever, 125 pound dude, I'm not going to shell out 60 bucks to watch that. But on the positive side of things, what I think this does for Demetrius Johnson is it does tee him up to have the potential to potentially make a, a mind-changing run. But I felt like you get to the end of this fight where clearly Demetrius Johnson is a hashtag just trying stuff. And the it, stuff he's mastered in the gym to hear sure, tell it. Yeah, but like you're not throwing Ray Borg up in the air and arm barring him from behind unless you felt like, well, fuck it, I can do whatever <laughs> I want, right? Yes. And I feel like the end perspective on that, the the like the the light that, that casts on this entire fight is sort of like Demetrius Johnson can do whatever he wants at 125 pounds, and now it's time for him to like accept some bigger, maybe higher profile challenges. Yeah, well, I wrote a column about this today, kind of saying a similar thing, that it seems like whatever he might do it at flyweight now, if you look, if he's determined to only fight flyweights in his next fight, then he's probably looking at the winner of Henry Cejudo and Sergio Pettis. But against either one of those guys, I mean, he already beat Cejudo and just, you know, ran him over. And Sergio Pettis, if, even if he beats Cejudo, he'll still come out there as a huge favorite against Sergio Pettis. And so it seems like anything that he might do in that division, we all just kind of assume that he's going to beat any flyweight out there. Uh, and so when he does go out there and beat him, even if he completely dominates him, even if he pulls off these incredible submissions, it still just feels like, well, yeah, that's what was supposed to happen. So he's not going to get a whole lot of credit for that, uh, or at least any more credit than he's already gotten. So... Yeah, it does seem to me like this is the time to start considering fighting a bantamweight. Whether it's somebody, you know, if one of the bantamweights wants to come down and fight him, or going back up to bantamweight for the first time since, you know, before they had the flyweight division. It seems like now is the time to really do that, because you got the record. There's really nothing left for you to do at 125 pounds. He needs something where we can look at it on paper and be like, he might lose this. And I just don't see how that's possible right now at 125 pounds. Yeah, uh, and even with Ray Borg, you get the feeling that, you know, he's been so dominant in that weight class, and the weight class itself is so relatively shallow that you're already kind of rushing 24-year-old Raymond Anthony Borg out there uh, to, to kind of get it handed to him by Demetrius Johnson, even though clearly Ray Borg could match the champion or nearly match the champion in speed, and clearly he was very game, and he was out there trying his own stuff and, and having a limited amount of success, but there was never a moment where it felt like Demetrius Johnson was threatened in any way. So it kind of feels like you're already rushing guys into title fights. It kind of felt that way with Horaguchi. I feel like it would sort of feel that way if you did it with Sergio Pettis, uh, even if he is coming off a, a win over Henry Cejudo in their next fight. Uh, I mean, Ray Borg was just two and one in his last three fights. He had beat Juicier Formiga and Louis Smolka, but he had just lost to Justin Scoggins in February of 2016. So it already feels like you're scrounging around for 125 pound guys for Demetrius Johnson to fight. And if it's still on the table, that his next fight could be against the winner of Cody Garbrandt against TJ Dillashaw at UFC 217, whether that be for the bantamweight championship or the flyweight championship. 
I think that is obviously the fight for the UFC to make at this point. And at this point, the fight for Demetrius Johnson to accept. Yeah, well, and I think that it does, at this point, behoove the UFC to start sitting down and talking about how you can financially convince Demetrius Johnson to do this. Because you need something like this if you're the UFC. Once you get past November with, you know, Bisping and GSP, there aren't a whole lot of, like, big, flashy kind of fights that you can use to draw people in. A champion versus champion thing, you know, even if it's one of the least popular champions going up in weight, uh, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that the UFC is going to want to have here in the coming months. So it might be worth their while to sit down there and figure out exactly what it would take to get Demetrius Johnson to do that. And hopefully he would be a little more flexible in it because right now I just I don't see the point of hanging around and continuing to do what you've already proven that you can do. I mean, the the whole thing that this record shows is his remarkable consistency at that weight class. And at a certain point, that consistency just becomes boring to people. Yeah, and especially if you can get uh, Cody Garbrandt, especially if he is victorious against TJ Dillashaw, I think that gives you a really good opportunity if you're the UFC, but both to have this like champion versus champion fight where it's probably the best opportunity that you will have in the foreseeable future to draw eyeballs to these sub 145 pound weight classes. Uh, and you have a guy in Cody Garbrandt who you clearly regard as sort of a young star uh, on his on the come up, I guess you could say, and this sort of like, uh, you know, not aging, but longtime veteran of the octagon and Demetrius Johnson, who's been the only flyweight champion the UFC has ever known and has been untouchable at that weight. Um, I think it's it's a good opportunity for everybody in that fight because, uh, you know, it, it has the, the potential to be a little bit higher profile than anything else you can do. And if Cody Garbrandt wins, I think that that's a nice, um, you know, star-making moment for him. And if Demetrius Johnson wins, well, then all bets are kind of off regarding absolutely everything in those in those weight divisions because, you know, Demetrius Johnson was himself a very, very good bantamweight back in the days before there was a flyweight division. And if he can go out there and, and beat the champ, I feel like at either weight, then, uh, you know, you could potentially do a rematch at 135 or just thrust DJ out there into bantamweight and just see how far he can go. And I'd be legitimately excited to see how far he can go. It would be a tremendous test and, like, a lot of fun to watch just to see, like, okay, we know he's so good, he's so skilled. Is that enough to make up for the size difference and the power difference against somebody like Cody Garbrandt? That would be just a really intriguing fight. And, you know... It's not going to be exactly Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz, as far as bringing in like the non-hardcore fans. But I do think a lot of the people that right now their stance is, as you said, all right, little guy, I'm not giving you my 60 bucks. I think a lot of them think twice about that if you can make uh, Demetrius Johnson versus Cody Garbrandt. Champions ass whipping tour. Okay. Put it on a shirt. Demetrius Johnson, international champions ass whipping tour. Just going to ride it until the wheels fall off. I think it's going to be a good one to do. All right. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to uh, round number two. Sure. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Chad, today on the old internets, I saw on MMAfighting.com a video of uh, Daniel Lima at Pancrase 290 weighing in and having to be literally dragged onto the scale. It is just remarkable and gross to watch this because, you know, they got the video at the weigh-in. And he has to have somebody on either arm, like, helping him up the stairs, like a brittle old man. 
and then helping him, like, disoriented and stumbling around onto the scale. And then he still misses weight. And then the fight still goes on after that. I mean, it's it kind of, and I know we'll talk about this more in round three, but really highlights the ridiculousness of weight cutting in general, but then also that, all right, we're going to just haul your corpse onto this scale, and then tomorrow you're going to get punched in the head. Are you fucking kidding me with this? Are you fucking kidding me? Nobody saw this guy looking like, like Ben Kingsley in the Gandhi movie. You know, when he's just uh, afraid of getting knocked over by a goat because he's so skinny and frail on his hunger strike. Nobody saw that and thought, maybe we don't want to have this guy fight. Fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. Well, Ben, uh, Ian McCall reportedly got granted his UFC release today, said that uh, he's considering retirement. And if he does fight again, he's not going to do it for less than $100,000 because that's the price he has put on his physical health. Uh, He mentioned that he could go and fight in, in Ryzen in Japan if the money works. And he also mentioned that he would be open to going to the Chechen Republic to fight in the uh, organization over there run by Ramzan Kadrov, the uh, dictator of that nation. I just want to read his quote about the possibility of fighting over there in the Chechen Republic, and I don't know that I'm going to have to say a whole lot after that. Here's Here's the quote from Ian McCall. People say, you don't care that it's blood money? I don't give a fuck that it's blood money. You can pay me in blood diamonds. I get into a cage and fist fight for money. I don't care. I don't live there. Of course, what he's doing is wrong. I don't agree with it, and I would say it to his face. But it's none of my business. My business is to go over there and fist fight. That's it. Sure, war is bad, and guys like that do evil shit, but I don't care. <laughs> wow. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, in the main event of UFC 216, we saw ourselves a pretty classic El Kakui fight. Your boy Tony Ferguson goes in there, which, by the way, can I just say, at this point, it even seems weird to me to see Tony Ferguson walking out for a fight because he's not allowed to wear his sunglasses and his face looks naked without them. So used to seeing him with sunglasses at all times. It's a little disorienting to see him come walking out there to the cage to fight Kevin Lee And, you know, some early struggles a little bit, as he is known to do. He gets loose a little bit. He gets hit. He gets hurt. Um, But then he comes back, and as Kevin Lee tires out, Tony Ferguson just keeps on charging forward, keeps on jawing at him, and then finally uh, gets him with a triangle choke off of his back, uh, finishing the fight with a submission late there in the third round to become the UFC interim lightweight champion. Now, this, for me, reinforced a couple things. One... Tony Ferguson is a hell of a lot of fun to watch fight and that you just, you got to absolutely put him out of the fight to make him stop. You're not just going to, you know, get a, a little bit of momentum against him and then get him to back down from you. Also, Tony Ferguson, perhaps a little too hittable to stay lightweight champion for very long. What do you think? Yeah, the second point I think we can talk about a little bit later in the round because I think it's a valid one. Uh, just on the fight itself, I would say that if you are put in the position where, at least for the time being, you have to forge ahead 
without Conor McGregor, then this is exactly the kind of scrap you want to have at 155 pounds, where you get a super entertaining fight between two guys who I think ultimately both have bright futures in the UFC still. Clearly, uh, Kevin Lee came out on the short end of this one, but he's still a very young guy, still a developing prospect. Uh, and he was kind of handing it to, to Tony Ferguson, uh, for at least that first round and to start the, the third round before he got caught in the triangle choke. So, uh, an impressive showing by both guys, I would say. Uh, and, uh, Maybe we should address this before we go on. What about the late punch at the end of the first round for Kevin Lee? Uh, that seemed pretty egregious. Like, uh, uh, not one where, where like you physically can't stop yourself, but like it's, it felt to me like the, the length of time between the horn and the second punch gets fired off almost felt like Kevin Lee, uh, was going to send a message to Tony Ferguson or something there. Seemed to me like frustration on his part, maybe. And I love when you can hear Herb Dean's angry dad reaction don't you do that again which i've i found myself saying to it to a toddler some you know long weekend morning so i know what he's feeling there but yeah i guess i mean for one thing i thought like it was not a bad performance for kevin lee even though he loses i mean he's a young fighter still kind of a, a work in development uh and he took the loss well i thought you know took it hard but definitely ha had a lot of you know, take it with dignity and respect afterwards. Um, but for Tony Ferguson, I think one of the things that made him, you know, were one of the things that it reminded me of that makes him so dangerous is that he has that ability. If you get caught watching him on the feet where you're just kind of standing there waiting, uh, then you're in trouble against that guy because he can open up with a lot of different stuff. Uh, and if you start coming after him, you know, you might have some success, but he, he seems to be able to wear guys down that way. Just, you know, he is not going to let you stay on offense for very long. And then if you do try to get him down, uh, his submissions game, his jujitsu game is legit from all over the place. You know, how, like, if you would have told me, you know, Tony Ferguson is going to go out there and beat Kevin Lee off his back with a triangle choke is not going to be one of my first guesses of how he's going to do that. Yeah, you're right. And you could totally see Kevin Lee kind of start to fade in this fight during the second round with Kevin Ferguson landing the body kicks and some jabs. Tony started. Ferguson. Kevin Ferguson, different guy. God damn it. I told myself I wasn't going to do that this round. Well. But you know what, though? I think that didn't the UFC official Twitter account after this thing was over congratulate Kevin Ferguson really? on his win? Oh. I think somebody had to screenshot it. But that honestly made me feel a little bit better <laughs> by, by doing that. Uh, anywho, Tony Ferguson starts to land the body kick, starts to land the jab with a little bit more regularity. Uh, and this kind of struck me also as sort of a youthful performance from Kevin Lee, because you could tell he was super amped up before this fight, stalking all over the cage during the introductions. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, you just, even though he had that strong start, it kind of felt to me like he was going to fade. And then he did. And then he ended up getting, uh, you know, tapped out with the triangle choke. And what was a really uh, excellent sequence for Tony Ferguson, because he flirted with that arm bar first and, and Kevin Lee managed to escape it. He comes back just a few seconds later, a few moments later uh, with the, the triangle choke and, and ends up soliciting the tap, uh, which I thought was, you know, really showed you how dangerous Tony Ferguson is on the ground. Let's talk about your point though, at the beginning of this round, what are we to make of Tony Ferguson moving forward? Clearly the fight he wants. I think the fight that would be uh, stylistically the most interesting right now would be to have Conor McGregor come back to lightweight and take him on. Did the fact that uh, Kevin Lee was able to land those early strikes uh, with such success against 
Tony Ferguson make you feel like any less bullish about his chances against Conor McGregor? Because I'm just not sure you can take those kind of shots from Conor McGregor like he did from Kevin Lee in this fight. Well, yeah, and it's not like Kevin Lee is the only one who's been able to land on Tony Ferguson. You know, in that fight with Lando Venato where he was hurt early on, had to come back. And you're right, you do wonder how that stands up against a guy like Conor McGregor because it was like as during the fight, you know, you heard Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier kind of observing that at times Tony Ferguson will let his chin get way up there. And if somebody with that one-punch power finds you, you know, with your chin up like that, that could be all it takes, you know, once or twice. And if it wasn't for that, I would really like the way Tony Ferguson's style matches up against Conor McGregor, which makes me think like, hey, maybe – you know, it's fixable. Maybe it's something that he could, it could be pointed out to him, like, hey, you're getting hit too much. And against like a power puncher, that's not going to fly. But his ability to use pressure to wear people down, I mean, Conor McGregor can be worn down. Uh, and his cardio can, you know, fail him in those instances, as we've seen in both boxing and MMA now. Uh, his uh, submissions game, both, you know, on top and off his back, Conor McGregor's vulnerable to that. If you could just keep from getting knocked out, if you could make yourself a little harder to hit, and I think part of it is Tony Ferguson is almost like disdainful of other people's power. Even when he gets caught, he doesn't seem to think that it's any big deal, like he's going to be fine, he's going to bounce back from it. If he could just kind of fix that attitude-wise, I think that he presents a whole lot of problems to a guy like Conor McGregor. And certainly, at this stage, being disdainful of the power of Conor McGregor seems sort of unthinkable. Uh, in that division, especially considering what we just saw him do to Eddie Alvarez in his last uh, UFC fight. Uh, and I think you're right. Just like physically, stylistically, it's a super intriguing fight because clearly Tony Ferguson is going to be the better rounded fighter. He's certainly going to have uh, the better offensive ground skills. He's certainly going to have the better wrestling. So, it, you know, perhaps it becomes a situation where he just needs to survive the feat or avoid any, you know, avoid taking any significant damage on the feet and, and get McGregor to, to the ground and, and see what happens there. Uh, I, I think it, it shapes up as a very interesting matchup. The question, of course, is going to be, is that what Conor McGregor wants to do? Clearly, the UFC has said it, it's not pursuing a third fight with Nate Diaz, but almost everyone else in the industry expects that that will be the fight we ultimately get. Conor McGregor against Nate Diaz 3. Uh, so, yeah, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens. I would love to see conor mcgregor against tony ferguson uh as a hardcore fan of the sport that's probably going to buy the pay-per-views no matter what i feel like that that's the fight i would like to see even more than than a trilogy fight with nate diaz well i think if you're conor mcgregor you need this fight i mean as much as he needs anything nobody can tell him to do anything but like if the consistent knock on him is that he won't defend any of these titles that he wins and you need to go in there and kind of get back to the normal business of being a champion wherein you fight you know top contenders or in this case the interim champion uh this would be a great opportunity to kind of just go back there and be like all right sheriff is back in town uh i'm the lightweight champion for real let me prove it by going out and knocking out this guy and it's a style-wise a better fight for him than somebody like Nurmagomedov so if I'm Conor McGregor, I see this as you know a a great gift to me to go out there and be able to prove something. And you know it's not going to be Mayweather McGregor money fight numbers, but Conor McGregor versus Tony Ferguson. You put those two guys on camera together, they can work something there. Yeah, and I think aside from you know having to prove that he can defend a UFC title, which is something that we haven't seen him do yet. Uh, he needs to win, though, his next fight. And I think that that is kind of what makes it an interesting decision because he just defeated Nate Diaz in their second fight. 
uh, by majority decision. So if you're if there's a matchup that you feel like maybe is the easiest one for you to win, I don't know if it's Nate Diaz again rather than than taking on Tony Ferguson. Uh, but like you said, if you have, if you feel like you have something to prove, which I don't know necessarily that McGregor does, uh, maybe Tony Ferguson is the choice. So it'll be interesting to say the least to see what Conor McGregor decides to do. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, like we said at the top of the show, it wasn't like we were going to get through the UFC 216 fight week without some irregularities. And boy, were there ever a couple leading up to this event. First, Kevin Lee keeps us in suspense during the official uh, morning weigh-in, rolling in there with just moments to spare before the top of the hour and weighing in a pound over and then having to go out and uh, lose that additional pound. And I believe pass a physical just to be able to 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 be allowed to go attempt to cut the additional weight, which I think everyone thought was was you know both cause to make a little mock of uh, Kevin Lee because he had just had the quote a couple days earlier where he said he was twenty pound pounds over, but had just eaten some tiramisu for for dessert. Tiramisu gets another one, which which. <laughs> People which, just can't resist the siren song of Tiramisu. Which, again, like we were talking about earlier, in terms of just not saying stuff out loud. <laughs> again, man, like that's not something you need to tell us. Like, I'm all for honesty in the media, but. You know, make weight and then brag about how you were chowing down on desserts last night. Anywho, he ultimately does make the weight for the interim title fight with Tony Ferguson. But then, and you know what? I'm just going to say, God bless Joe Rogan for being out there on the UFC uh, color commentator call for this one. Uh, you know, I feel like over the years, Rogan has, has uh, evolved a lot as a, as a commentator. He's, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that he would, that he would say in the early years that, that, that kind of struck you as an unprofessional call uh, on the broadcast have, have kind of become few and far between. And yet he's still got this really remarkable and I think commendable honesty where he sees Kevin Lee take his shirt off in what I believe is still the Harley Davidson prep point. Yep. Uh, and he says immediately, what is that on his chest? Is that staff? Which as of, you know, that as a viewer at home, that's not what you want to hear before a title fight. But I also felt like, man, kind of awesome that we're just going to say that on the broadcast and then make a lot of the discussion during this fight about whether or not Kevin Lee has a staph infection, because that obviously is a huge issue as it pertains to this fight. And then gets him to confirm it on air after the fight. Be like, yeah, it's staph, man. <laughs> Which, I mean, if you're Tony Ferguson, you're standing over there, you're celebrating your win, you're doing a little break dancing, and then you're like, what, what, what did he just say? Did I just fight a guy with staph? All right, I gotta, I gotta hit the showers now. Everybody, get out of my way. Uh, that's, the, you know, that's when I wonder if I'm Tony Ferguson. Like, wait a minute. Like, I'm glad we were able to go through with the fight and get the win. It's a great night and all. But isn't the athletic commission supposed to be protecting me against exactly this kind of thing? Uh, and he said that he hid it from the athletic commission, like during the the physical. Which I don't know how you're able to hide that. That's a huge lump on your chest there. And anybody who's seen like staff infections, like, yep, that's that's exactly what I, that can look like. 
Uh, and afterwards, I don't know if you saw, like, MMA Fighting had a thing where basically asking the uh, Bob Bennett, the executive director of the United States Athletic Commission, you know, how was he cleared? And, him being, and his answer was just like, he completed the medicals and our doctors deemed him fit to fight and then said everything else was a medical privacy issue and wouldn't talk about it. So it was just like, he's fit because we said he is. And the reason we said he is is because we can't tell you why. Uh, so that doesn't really help you any there. But, you know, that especially once you then start thinking about him, like, so he's got a staph infection and he's going through this brutal weight cut and then he's going to get in the cage and fight. Why, what, like, what are we doing to protect anybody from themselves at that point? Yeah, and if he if he successfully hid it from from a medical professional, uh, I mean, I guess that's sort of on how, Kevin Lee. But at how, the same time, how I do you hide it, that? If they do the doctor thing where they put the stethoscope on your chest to listen to you, like then they're gonna notice it, right? Like, yeah. how do you hide? It's not like it's like tucked away somewhere on the inside of your elbow. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I think think that there is some, you know, a personal responsibility issue going on here with Kevin Lee. I think as we all would admit, understandably, hiding a, a medical issue that could conceivably keep him out of the biggest fight of his life from a doctor. Uh, I don't know how the doctor misses that, but at the same time, it brings up all of these sort of age-old questions that clearly we've been asking since the, the inception of this show, and maybe since, you know, people have been asking since the beginning of combat sports itself, and that is, like, uh, what kind of real oversight is happening here, and is the job of the State Athletic Commission to really intercede on on behalf of the fighters and promote fighter safety or is it just sort of like a, a glorified hoop to jump through to make sure that that like everyone gets to make their money and that the event goes on as scheduled it's that one it's yes the second one it's you the think second one yes i mean there's some anecdotal evidence to suggest that that's right i will <laughs> yes. say yeah well and just you know it's not like it, it seems like it's becoming more common i guess or just like more of an accepted part of fight week is that Way in morning is going to roll around and we all sit there and go, all right, who is it going to be this time or which couple people is it going to be this time where you're going to show up, you know, overweight and looking terrible or you're not going to show up at all. Like also on this one, you know, Nick Lentz uh, is supposed to fight Will Brooks and he gets pulled off of that one and afterwards says, you know, he's in the hospital and can't feel his hands or his feet and is having like a diabetic like symptoms uh, from his weight cut. It just kind of highlights the ridiculousness of the whole process, does it not? It does. And, man, can you imagine if the UFC lost the main event of this pay-per-view again? And, you know, uh, after we already had to uh, postpone Demetrius Johnson against Ray Borg from UFC 215, we already had to pull Andrea Lee off this card because of uh, the USADA regulations or UFC slash USADA regulations. As you said, we lost... Uh, Nick Lentz versus Will Brooks. A lot of people thought that Steve Amiocic and Cain Velasquez would wind up on this card. If Tony Ferguson and Kevin Lee falls off this one, it's just yet another situation where all you can kind of do is throw your hands up in the air, uh, both because the, the UFC loses another main event fight and because just the way stuff seems to work leading up to an MMA fight is is very, very strange. Uh, you know, and, and even around Kevin Lee's weight cut, I feel like you come out of that weigh-in with the the opinion that like the thing we are doing supposedly to increase fighter safety, where we want these guys to like weigh a similar amount when they fight each other, or in this case, you know, weigh exactly the same amount, uh, is actually 
arguably more dangerous than if you just let them both go out there win 170 something and fight each other. Right. Well, and that is like the thing that highlights the ludicrousness of it is that you have two guys who weigh about the same amount who are both going to cut down to a certain other like unhealthy weight for them uh, and then try to, before the fight time, get back up to a more healthy weight uh, that is roughly similar. Like, why? What's the point? I mean, I wrote about this before, about that if fighters could all just kind of reach a sort of gentleman's agreement not to cut weight, they'd all be better off. Everybody would be better off. And it's not like it would change too much. You're, it's not like you're getting an advantage by cutting weight at the UFC level. You're just managing to fight guys who are still around your same size by cutting weight. Like, you're you're not giving up weight by cutting weight. So the whole thing is just kind of crazy. But And yet, it's also a really difficult problem to fix. Well, let's spend a couple minutes here talking about Derek Lewis before we wrap this up. Obviously, he had to pull out of his fight with Fabricio Verdum on the day of UFC 216, uh, you know, citing a back injury, citing a back issues that seemed to hamper Derek Lewis throughout his career and ongoing. And, and at this stage, Ben, even Derek Lewis just announced his retirement during his post-fight interview uh, after his fight against uh, Mark Hunt back in June. And then, you know, what was it? A few weeks later, he decided that he was actually going to c- continue to soldier on with his MMA career. Typical MMA retirement. Exactly. So we set him up with this fight for with Fabricio Verdum. And he ultimately can't make it to the cage due to what I, what I think is like a lingering problem for him. Like, what kind of future do we see for Derek Lewis now in the cage, knowing that he has already retired once and then he fails to make it to to fight Fabricio Verdum? In this in this time around, yeah, I mean, I wonder what his training camp must have been like because he looked good on the scales. You know, he looked like he was in really good shape, and yet if you're dealing with that kind of like debilitating lower back problem, like two bulging discs in your back, how the hell were you training? I don't know if you ever had lower back injuries, but you can't even stand up with stuff like. I mean, it'll it'll ruin your entire life if you have some stuff like that going on, and. You know, as a dude with a pile of trash neck, I can tell you, vertebra stuff is not easily fixed. So I don't. He's got to come up with some kind of solution for this, right? Like I, I mean, I don't know if he's had surgery on it before, or if that's the answer here. But to be able to get that close is really strange to me because that's the kind of thing that it's. You know, it's not like you threw it out the day of the fight. You know, uh, just warming up in the locker room, right? I mean, it must have been a problem for you leading up to this, and then it just got to the point where you couldn't deal with it anymore. I'm curious to know what it was feeling like, you know, two weeks out or the week of or anything, because that there's no way that you can just be like, all right, I'm going to tough my way through two bulging discs in my vertebra. Yeah, and for Derek Lewis, a guy who just a few months ago seemed like a real breath of fresh air for this UFC heavyweight division, which is so beleaguered and so... Uh, in need of of fresh faces and and fresh athletes to come out here and and breathe a little life into the dang thing. Uh, now you just don't know what what will be next for for Derek Lewis. Let's do just saying stuff, and then uh, then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. Okay, what's your just saying stuff? I'm just gonna try this out, man. I just want to see how this feels. I'm going home tonight. I'm gonna drink a dose Eckies. That's a dose Eckies because Modelo won't pay me nothing. Okay. Did you see this, Ben, today that uh, starting in 2018, Bud Light is out and Modelo is in as the, quote, official beer and malt beverage sponsor of the UFC in the United States. I like it. I was just going to say, man, I got to say I like it, too. I think it's a great move for the UFC, for starters, because I feel like we've kind of done all the outreach that we can do to the Bud Light crowd. 
<laughs> I feel like if you drink Bud Light and you might also like the UFC, you probably already know about it. Yeah. You're probably already all in. It strikes me as just having a little bit more utility now if you can put some UFC fighters in advertisements for Modelo, which, you know, if you're out here drinking Modelo, maybe maybe you're not all in for the UFC. I don't know. Plus, Second, just a better beer. Yeah, that's right. As muy especial, yeah. as they say. Uh, it just casts a different light. I would say for for the UFC uh, to now go out there with its main beer slash malt beverage sponsor being Modelo rather than than Bud Light. I like it. I'm just saying. Just I think saying. it's a great move. Can I, can I get a Modelo over here? Well, Chad, I'm just saying. First of all, I did not know that Daniel Cormier had a podcast. And the only way I found out he had a podcast is that he used this podcast to start some beef with Anthony Rumble Johnson. Oh. Do you know the name of this podcast? I do. I do, but I'm not going to spoil it for the people at home. He does it with a uh, dethroned founder and just good, smart dude, uh, Nick Swinburne. It's called Talk and Talker. Yep. What am I? I don't. What am I not understanding? I don't, I don't get it either. Anyway, after this beef back and forth between uh, Daniel Cormier and Rumble Johnson, you know, who fires back and Facebook posts as he likes to do, then Daniel Cormier comes back again. And what does he say? I'm sorry. I was wrong. Oh, man, that's such a Daniel Cormier move. I'm just saying, it, can you doubt that Daniel Cormier is just a good dude? Even when he does like the normal MMA fighter thing, like getting into just a needless, senseless beef with another fighter, then he still has like the ability to walk it back and realize, you know what? I got carried away there. I apologize. I was wrong. I'm just saying, Daniel Cormier, we don't deserve you. Can't you see Daniel Cormier, like, I don't know, in the grocery store aisle or something? Maybe he's on the Aerodyne bike. And all of a sudden he's like, now that he's had, his his head is cleared and he has had some time to think about it. He's like, you know what? I owe Rumble an apology. Yeah. I'm going to get on Talk and Talker issue that apology. What? I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. Just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. No event this weekend, but we will be back as scheduled next Monday. We're going to look ahead to the uh, Donald Cerrone against Darren Till fight, I believe. It's coming up here. In Gdansk. Poland. In a couple of weeks, live from Gdansk. Is that where they invented that uh, music? Where it goes, Gdansk, 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 Gdansk. Yeah, that's where they invented Gdansk yeah. music. Uh -huh, okay. Electronic Gdansk music. Nice. As of right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Do you think that on the Talk and Talker podcast, they both secretly think that they're the talker? And they think the other guy is talk? I hope that the, that the roles have been clearly laid out for everyone. I would hate to think that Talk and Talker exists... Uh, under the shroud of some, you know, lack of clarity. Yeah, you want to make sure everybody knows what they're getting into. When are we going to use our podcast to start a beat? Okay. Because I feel like that's just, you know, never even thought about that. Who uses a 